Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Uh, before, before we dig in to, to some things, let me, let me share a couple of announcements with you and then we're going to dig into the scripture. First of all is this, on May 8th we have our, it's going to be Mother's Day, and that's when we have our baby parent dedication here at the church building. And so if you have a, a child, parents, if you have a child that you want to dedicate to the Lord on that day, we will be doing it on Mother's Day that Sunday morning. We won't be doing it at the Saturday service. We'll be doing it all at the Sunday morning service. But you need to know it's not just about dedicating children. It's about parents dedicating themselves to raise their children to follow after Jesus. Second thing you need to know is Vacation Bible School comes up in June and Michelle Tackett is already working on getting the volunteers together. If there are those of you here who would like to volunteer to assist in Bible school in a number of capacities, then there's going to be a, a place for you to sign up out in the atrium. If you would like to do that, simply jot your name down and Michelle will be in touch with you. As she's already been making connections about that already. Um, tomorrow evening at 6.30 is the showing that Christ Community has for God's Not Dead 2. I know some of you have already gone to see the movie. You can purchase the tickets out here for $5 each, and you can use them for any showing. But I want to invite you to, if, if, you're, if you're going to come with a church group, it'll be tomorrow night at Wheelersburg Cinemas at 6.30, and definitely at 6.30. I messed that time up the last time. There was a little miscommunication, but definitely at 6.30. The other thing I want you to know, which is really kind of cool, what's going on at the church, we have, um, we have set for not just ourselves as a staff, but for the church as a whole, a goal uh, this year of, of reaching 100 new families uh, at Christ Community Church and 100 baptisms. And it's been really neat to be able to meet over the last couple months with different groups of people in the congregation. We take between uh, 60 and 100 at a time, and we'll have a dinner. We have one coming up this Wednesday, which we have some folks coming to. And we, we encourage these folks to be active in, in reaching out into their communities with the love of Christ and beginning to invite people to, to come and hear the gospel here at Christ Community Church. Well, Last weekend, we, I mean, we've, we, it's been wonderful. Matt stood up and told you we had, we've had 30 since we started this. Well, last weekend, we had 15 new families come. And, and the commitment on the part of the staff is once, once they come, we're going to be in their homes that week. And so that's, we, we sat down on Monday and then Tuesday morning, and we were distributing the, the cards like crazy, saying, okay, you're going here, you're going here, you're going here. And it's really neat to see what God's doing. And I want to I wanna thank you guys so much for, for reaching out the way you're reaching out. Now, for those of you who have not been to a dinner yet, there's going to be a dinner for you, and there's going to be the opportunity for you to get connected and get plugged in. So, and, and we'll let you know more about that as, as that dinner approaches. The other thing we're looking for, we're, we're doing is 100, 100 baptisms as well. Next weekend, we're going to be baptizing some folks. I was approached by some people just this last weekend. 
hey, Rick, we want to be baptized. So we're, we're having a class tomorrow morning. If there's anyone here this evening who desires to be baptized, we'll baptize Saturday, we'll baptize Sunday, um, we'll baptize anytime. Uh, if, if you desire to be baptized, Scott's going to be teaching a class tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. here at the church building. And so I want to invite you to, to come and hear about baptism if you desire to be baptized. And, and if you can't make it tomorrow morning at 9, all you have to do is get in touch with one of the staff pastors or call the church office and let us know and we will find you. We will find you. And, and we will uh, share with you about what baptism is, okay? So we're going to be doing that next week. I'm kind of excited about all that God is doing for certain here. Now, if you'll take your Bibles and go over to Luke chapter 19, we're going to be looking at an encounter that Jesus had with, with a guy that was absolutely despised by everyone in Jesus' culture. The tax collector was someone people loved to hate, and with good reason. With good reason, they, they, would, uh, they would hate these tax collectors. We'll talk about that in just a second. Let me, uh, let me read from Luke chapter 19. I'll, I'll read the first seven verses. We'll end up going all the way through verse 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short... He could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Zacchaeus, you come down. Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, this is his encounter with Jesus. Now, look at verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he, meaning Jesus, has gone to be the guest of a sinner. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And the reason they would say that is because they had no regard for a tax collector. There's a reason why tax collectors were viewed with such disdain in Jesus' day. You see, the, the way Rome did things, Rome assessed, they, they divided they divided everything into districts, and then they assessed every district, okay, a certain amount for taxes. Then they would hire the highest bidder who would bid to become the tax collector for that district. Here we have Zacchaeus, who's, who's going to be the one hired by Rome to collect the taxes. Now, Rome viewed this tax collector... As, as their employee, but he had one main concern he had to take care of, and that was to make sure that the, the assessed amount for the district that Zacchaeus was over, that Zacchaeus would pay them exactly what they had assessed it to be. But here was the deal. The tax collector, Rome didn't care how the tax collector treated the people. So the tax collector... Could, could charge whatever amount he wanted to charge as the tax collector because he had that authority. There was great power in his position. He had that authority to charge whatever he wanted for taxes. So he made sure he charged the level he needed to charge to take care of Rome, but they always charged much higher so they could line their pockets. 
So the tax collectors would be wealthy, but the tax collectors would, tax, tax collectors would also be hated. Because people never knew how much they owed. It was always at the tax collector's discretion. He only had to make sure Rome got their piece of the pie. And, and, th- and that was it. Now, if you didn't have enough money, let's say, the, let's say Zacchaeus approached you and said, it's time for you to pay your taxes, and you didn't have enough money to cover your taxes, then the tax collector, out of his generous heart, would loan you the money to pay your taxes at interest rates that were out of this world. And so he was getting you coming and going all the time as, as you paid your taxes to Rome. So he was absolutely hated and despised. And that's why when Jesus is going to Zacchaeus' house to eat with Zacchaeus, everybody's going, wait a second. This guy's going to eat with a sinner. This guy's going to eat with a sinner. And so they had disdain for, for, for Zacchaeus and certainly were troubled with the fact that Jesus would actually hang out with somebody like that. Okay, the other thing you need to know is that there were two types of taxes. These are interesting things to me. It was interesting in studying this. There were the stated taxes, which was what we would know as an income tax. Uh, There was also a stated tax of your purchase taxes. If you bought something, you paid taxes on those. But there was also a tax for the right to exist. You had to pay a tax just for the right to exist in Rome. That was one of the stated taxes. Another uh, of the types of taxes were the duty taxes for tra- uh, traveling the roads uh, to purchase goods. If you owned a, a cart that was pulled by the animal, you paid taxes on the cart. You paid taxes on the wheels to make the cart go. You paid taxes on the animals to pull the cart. You paid taxes on everything. And you paid them to the tax collector, and the tax collector was a hated, hated person. So Jesus steps into this guy's life. And let me tell you something. When Jesus steps into your life, things change. This little series that we're doing is about Jesus changes lives. So when when people encounter Jesus, they're 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 encountering a crossroads. You can't you can't encounter Jesus without making a decision. You can't encounter Jesus and just remain neutral. You encounter Jesus and a decision has to be made and Zacchaeus sees that decision and he makes the decision. You look in your outline. The second thing I have down there is Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus resulted in repentance. And and that's what I'm going to land on for a little bit this evening. You look at verse 8. In verse 8... After Jesus and Zacchaeus have eaten dinner together, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, he stood up in this little meeting they were having, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now I want you to look at something. When he says, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, that word if is big. It's what's known as a, as a first-class case, and, and it means this. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, and I have. There's a confession there that's being made. Since I've cheated people the way I've cheated them, 
I'm going to pay them back four times over. I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor, and I'm going to pay those that I've cheated back four times over. So, this, this little quote that Barclay has, I put it down in your bulletin. This is what I want you to pay attention to. True repentance. What is repentance? What does it mean when we repent? True repentance is one which demonstrates sorrow by action. Sorrow by action. It's one thing to look to God and say, I'm sorry. It's another thing to look to God and say, I'm sorry, and do something about it. There's a worldly sorrow, which we'll see here in just a second when we look at the 2 Corinthians passage I have down for you. There's a worldly sorrow that is a sorrow that, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm, I'm just sorry I got caught. You know what that's like? I know what that's like. Kids definitely know what that's like. Sorry I got caught. I'm sorry, but I'm only sorry because I got caught. I'm not really sorry because I want to change. We know that Zacchaeus' sorrow when he was dealing with Jesus wasn't because Jesus just called him out. He was sorry because he was willing to accompany his sorrow with action. All right, now I want you to go to 2 Corinthians with me, and we'll look at uh, chapter 7. And in chapter 7, I want to read verses, verses 8 through 11. And this is Paul writing to this church in Corinth that he had to get on. He had to be pretty tough with them because that sin was running rampant within the church and there were so many things that weren't being taken care of. And so, so in 1 Corinthians, Paul takes them to task. In 2 Corinthians, they've read the letter, they read 1 Corinthians, and they responded. And this is Paul's address to how they responded. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter... I don't regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, which means led you to change. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So there's two types of sorrow here. There's a sorrow, a worldly sorrow that brings death, but there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, and that leads to salvation. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. And, and here you go. This is what we're going to be looking at here in the next couple minutes. What earnestness. What eagerness to clear yourselves. Or some of you may have in your Bibles, you have the word vindication. What indignation, what alarm, or the word fear, what longing, what concern, or the word zeal, and what readiness to see justice done, or what readiness to avenge yourself. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Now, what I'd like to do here, just for a couple minutes, and you can jot these down in your outline, I want to look at what it means to repent, because... Literally, the word, the word means, just as a picture word, to repent means to turn around. Repentance is, I'm walking one direction, and now I'm changing directions. Okay, I've done a U-turn. I haven't done a 360, or I'm still walking in the same direction. 
I've done a 180. I've just done a U-turn. I was going this direction. I'm turning, and I'm going this direction. When it comes to coming to faith in Christ, it is a recognition that, that the path that we are on in serving ourselves, in, in trying to work out our, our own work out our relationship with God without Christ, just trying to earn ourselves a way into heaven, just trying to be good enough, trying to be nice enough. That, that direction, when you come to terms with the fact that that direction is a dead end, and you turn around and you turn to Christ, and you put your faith in Christ, you ask Him to come and forgive your sin and, and allow His Holy Spirit to live in you, when you do that, that is, that is a picture of repentance, that turning around. You have turned. You have changed, okay? But repentance is more than just making, I guess, more than just saying a prayer. This is kind of interesting, and Paul spells it out here for us. First he says, what earnestness? What does he mean by earnestness? I'm going to give you just little short clips of of what this means, okay? I'm not going to go into big detail about what each word means or, or we'd be here all night. Earnestness, meaning it simply means this. What earnestness? The, the willingness to be quick to deal with your sin. That's what he's talking about. This desire to be quick in dealing with your sin. I realize I've sinned. I realize I'm a sinner. Just like Zacchaeus, he realized his sin. He was quick to deal with his sin. Okay, Lord, well, you know, in this, in this little dinner that he has with, with Jesus, this little time together he has with Jesus, okay, Lord, half of what I have I'm giving to the poor, and then anyone I've cheated, I'm, I'm going to pay them back four times over. He was willing. He was quick to deal with his sin. The second word we had was, was vindication or eagerness to clear yourselves. Vindication, meaning doing what's necessary. Vin to vindicate yourself means I'm doing what's necessary to clear things. I'm going to do what's necessary to make things right. Now, here's the deal. When it comes to our salvation... We don't have the capacity to do what's necessary to make things right when it comes to our salvation. This is important. Because if we could simply be good enough on our own and say, okay, God, I promise, I'm sorry, I swear, I will never do that again. From this point on, this is how I'm going to be. If we had the capacity to do that on our own, then Jesus didn't need to go to the cross. Being put into a right relationship with God, being able to pay for your sin, is something that you and I don't have the capacity to do when it comes into our relationship with God, when it comes to our salvation. Rather, the only thing we can do here is we can only place ourselves at the mercy of God and the mercy of Jesus and say, I know, Father, that you took my sin, you placed it on your son's shoulders, and he took it to the cross. He paid for it. He vindicated me. He, he made it so that my heart could be cleansed, so that I could be cleared. Okay? So, so in that, we don't have the capacity to vindicate ourselves as, as far as our, our relationship with God. 
Now, on human terms, that's a cat of a different color. We'll talk about that in just a second. It was kind of a fun discussion at our sermon discussion when we, we discussed that little part of it. The third thing, what indignation, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, what indignation, simply this, indignation is anger on your part at the sin controlling your life. I'm so angry at the fact that I have allowed this sin to control me. I'm, I'm angry at it. And, and we get a picture of this over in Romans 7. You can read this on your own sometimes. sometime. But Paul is talking about how, how he recognizes he has this desire to, to live and serve God and do the things that are right. But he also notices that there's this war that's going on inside of him because while he wants to do what's right, oftentimes he finds himself doing what's wrong. And, and it causes, you can, you can read chapter 7 and you can feel the tension in the words as you read the words. Finally, to the place where out of anger he says, wretched man that I am. I can just see him shaking his fist, but he's not shaking his fist at God. He's shaking his fist at himself. Wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death? See, he, he has the indignation towards his sin. Angry that that's the person he is. I want to live for Jesus. I want to live for the one I'm following. But too often I find myself living for myself and chasing after sin instead of chasing after God. And I'm a wretched man and I'm angry about this. That's the kind of indignation that leads to repentance. Because until you're angry at the sin that you harbor in your life, until Rick Clark is angry at the sin that he harbors in his life, then Rick Clark isn't going to do a thing about it. I might say I'm sorry. I might give a nice little tip of the hat to God and say, hey, thank you, God, for dying on the cross for me. Okay, it's all cool. But I'm not sorrowful. I'm not angry at what's gone on. I've excused it. I've tolerated it. And so rather, rather than doing that, Paul, Paul is saying in this, to this repentant heart, there's indignation there. And it's not, I'm not ticked off at somebody else. I'm ticked off at me. I'm ticked off at me for uh, allowing myself to harbor that sin in my life. Okay, fourth thing. He says in the version we read, what alarm, but the word is fear. The word is phobos. The word's fear where we get our word phobias, okay? And simply put, what fear? What is there to fear? Here's what he's talking about. Fear of punishment from God. Okay, there are places in the scripture where we are to fear God, which means to be in awe of him, okay? Just to, just to be able to, to look at him and, and to go, God, you are, you are so awesome that you would love me that you would, you would even consider me, that you would send your son to die for I stand in awe of you. That's fear, to stand in awe of. But there's oftentimes in Scripture another fear that's there, and that's a fear to stand scared to death of what God would do if he punished us the way we deserve our punishment. And so, in repentance, there is this recognition that, that this sin that I'm harboring, this sin that I'm angry at, is, is sin that, that God punishes. 
God punishes sin. That was why when Jesus went to the cross, when he went to the cross, he was punishing sin by giving his own son for our sin. The fifth word you have down there, what longing. Simply put, this is the desire to make things right. What longing, what desire that God has put in you to make things right. That's a part of repentance. And then he says zeal. What zeal? Zeal is simply the determination to make things right. So there's this, there's this desire to make things right. There's this zeal. Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then there's the avenging wrong, the last thing I have down there. And that's simply actually making things right. Okay, it's not just about, okay, I have this desire and one day I'll get around to it. It's I have this desire, I want to do it now, and now I'm going to do it. And so the way we make things right in repentance when, with sin in our life and our relationship with God, the way we make things right is we have, to, we have to bring that to the cross. And we come to terms with the fact that Jesus died for our sin. And we can only come to him as sinners in need of his grace. And when he... When you come to him with a repentant heart and, and you walk away from that change because you walk away with his grace. And when you walk away with his grace, you walk away as his follower. And you, when you walk away as his follower, you walk away with a new direction. You're no longer following yourself. You're following him. You have turned. You have changed. And you've shown it. Now... How did Zacchaeus here prove his repentance? Well, let me, let me toss this out. Look at this in your outline. In the case in, under the Old Testament law, in the case of theft or extortion, the law required a person to make restitution by complete repayment plus 20%. I want to show you that passage. If you go over to Leviticus chapter 6 and look at verses 1 to 5. Okay, let's throw that up there. The Lord said to Moses... If anyone sins or is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care or about something stolen, or if they cheat their neighbor, or if they find lost property and lie about it, or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit, when they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them or the lost property they found. Or whatever it was they swore falsely about, they must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. And so there was a requirement by the law to make restitution, and it wasn't just paying them back, but it was paying them back plus 20%. When it came to possessions that you owned, which, which possessions were as good as money back then, if you stolen someone's ox, then when you paid them back, you didn't just pay them back with the ox, you paid them back four times over. They got four of them. When you paid them back with any, any piece of property, you paid them back four times over. That's how you did it. And so when we look at, at Zacchaeus, and we want to know how he proved, how he proved his uh, repentance, look at, all you have to do is look at verse 
8, which, which we'd read, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount, which is exactly what he did. Now, here's the question. It's going to come up in growth groups. It certainly came up at the sermon discussion. It's not in your outline, but it's, it's, a, it's a question worth asking. So what does this restitution look like since we are no longer under the Old Testament law? Now we are under grace. Okay, rather than in order to set things right with God, I have to make restitution with this person plus 20% or this person plus four, you know, paying back four times over. What does that look like now for us? So I got a couple things I'm going to toss out. This would be good just to say, let's have an open mic and talk about this a little bit. When Jesus died on the cross, his payment was completely sufficient to cover all your sin. All of it. You believe that? Amen. You believe that? Well, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, when, when he died, his payment was sufficient to cover all your sins. So when we come to the cross and we come to him in faith, we walk away forgiven. That sin not being held against us any longer. So how would it be if, if I had stolen from you Let's say I'd stolen 100 bucks from you. How would it be that I've now come to Christ? How would you take this, that I come to you and I go, you know, I, I, I know I took 100 bucks from you, but Jesus forgave me, so it's all good. How would that go over? It's going to be interesting for you to uh, dig on that a little bit. I'm not going to sit here and give you answers because we had so, some wonderful discussion about that. I just want to raise it for a minute. I just want to raise it for a minute because we aren't under the law of the Old Testament. So when we're dealing with the principles of the New Testament, what do we do there? You get to dig through your scriptures a little bit and, and see what you come up with there. But here's what, here's what we do know. Because I, I'm this guy, Okay. I stole money when I was working at the bakery in Virginia Beach. And, um, and I, when I got saved, when I went away to Asbury and I got my heart right with Christ and all that, every time someone would preach about something like this, I always felt so stinking guilty. They didn't know it. They didn't know it. I knew it, but they didn't know it. But I felt so guilty. Where's this guilt coming from? Look, as an unbeliever, I didn't have any guilt. And now all of a sudden I have all this guilt. What's happening here? Well, what's happening here is this. When you come to faith in Christ, Jesus isn't the one who walks inside of you. 
The Holy Spirit is the one who comes and lives inside of you. And when he comes in, he's going to come. And part of his job is, well, his job is to transform you and to me, you and me into the image of his son, Jesus. And one of the ways he's going to do that is he's going to convict you of sin. And so there I am. I mean, I've gone through years of guilt with this whole thing that went on at the bakery, and it was about 100 bucks. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if it was more or less. I don't know. I just kind of arrived at a figure. And, um, and I, remember, I remember taking the checkbook and writing a check to Plaza Bakery in care of Mr. Freeman. Mr. Freeman, my boss. And I attached a letter in that, I mean, attached a note in that letter that I sent and the, with the check. And I said, Mr. Freeman, when I worked for you, he was such a good boss. He was so good to me. When I worked for you, I stole money because when I would need to fill the gas, the van up for the bakery, I would, it, we, we just went to the cash register and took cash out. And I, I said, I would always take extra cash out and then put the receipt back in, but I would take extra cash out. And I don't know how much I took, but I'm saying, I, here's, here's a check for 100 bucks. And if, I, uh, if, if you think it's more, tell me, and I'll, I'll pay it. You know, when I put that letter in the mail, when it went into the mailbox, it's just like this went, there's no more guilt. I mean, I'm ashamed to stand and, and talk about it, but, but no more guilt. Because the Spirit is the one who was going, okay, Rick, okay, this has to be taken care of. By the way, speaking of that, as the Spirit works in our conscience, did you know that the United States government has what's called the Conscience Fund? I don't know if you knew this or not. I remember reading this, and when we were talking at sermon discussion, I was going, gosh, there's something just hit me right now about something I read about the Conscience Fund. And so I was Googling it, and you can Google and read all kinds of things about it, but I want you to read just, I'll have this on the overhead. I want you to read this with me. The Conscience Fund began in 1811 when James Madison's administration received $5 from someone who said he had defrauded the government. Guilt money has been dribbling into the U.S. Treasury ever since, more than 6.5 million in all. Now, this article was written... In, uh, in 91, okay? So I think we're, we've, we feel less and less guilty about defrauding the government, so it's probably still at 6.5, I don't know. Um, most donors, including the first, have been anonymous, but they often include letters that admit to some offense against the government. Please accept this money, nine cents, for two postal stamps I reused, wrote one person. Other troubled correspondents have cited unpaid U.S. custom duties, military blankets kept after discharge from service, even money found on the street, a dime. The biggest sum ever received, $155,502 in 1990, arrived without any hint of the dark deed that lay behind it. The Treasury Department doesn't ask questions. Uh, when there's a return address, it responds with a thank you note, says Andy Montgomery, spokesman for the agency's Financial Management Service Bureau. 
The first year, 1811, the government counted $250 in contributions. Last year, the Treasury Department received $238,115 from 150 individuals. Since 1982, the fund has averaged in excess of two hundred dollars a year. The money doesn't stay in government coffers very long. <laughs> it never does. They spend like crazy. Um, it's deposited into Treasury's into the Treasury's general account as miscellaneous receipts, Montgomery says, and then it's used for general expenses. The sincerity of some donors' repentance can be uncertain, as demonstrated by a, by a received letter reading, Dear Eternal Revenue Service, I have not been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax. Enclosed, find a cashier's check for 1000 bucks. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. Um, I like that. That was good. I won't take the time to read this one to you, but, but this, this is a letter I received from Jim Chapman. Jim and Barb used to worship here till they relocated to South Carolina. Uh, Jim worked for the railroad just right down here at the viaduct in the old railroad building there. And he brought this to me uh, the week he received it in the mail. It was a check for a hundred bucks. I, th- I think it was hundred bucks. Let me let me look at that again. Yeah, check for a hundred dollars to N and W Railway. And this guy had had stolen some coal off of one of the trains, and then he'd stolen uh, another tool off of one of the trains. And what he said. Um, What he said here is this. This is the part I want you to hear. My reason for doing so, my reason for sending this check to you is because I'm now a Christian and I believe it's the right thing to do. Although it's been many years back in the 1930s and early 40s, I still remember then and I'm truly sorry for every wrong that I've done. Isn't that something? He didn't have to do... I mean, the railroad didn't have any clue about this. But this is a guy who had come to faith in Christ. And when he came to faith in Christ, what he had done mattered. And the Holy Spirit convicts him. And he then gives testimony to the grace and mercy and power of God by then offering repayment. That's pretty big stuff. Repentance is more than just going, okay, God, I'm sorry. Repentance is this turning around this turning around that Zacchaeus did. And Zacchaeus' expression of love for the tax collector resulted in Zacchaeus' salvation. Look at this. Verse 9 and 10. This is the part I haven't read. This is the rest of the story. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, came to seek And to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. That's our mission. Our mission is not to be a holy huddle where we all get together and we all just kind of rely on each other and hang out with each other at the exclusion of reaching out to the sinners. You know? Rather than looking at our world in judgment, we need to look at our world as a world in need of Jesus. 
We need to look at our neighbor as a person who is in need of Jesus, our co-worker, our family member. That's how we need to view people. When we start viewing people through the lens of judgment and we start going, you're this and you're this and you're this, then, then you've totally missed the boat with what Jesus' mission is about. It's about reaching lost people. By the way, when Jesus said, because the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost, the word, this is big here. This is, this is a gold nugget. If you walk out of here with only one thing, walk out of here with this. The word lost here does not mean damned or doomed. Okay? It's not, Jesus isn't saying, the Son of Man came to seek and to save all those going to hell. Because you're going to hell. That's not how he approached him. That's not how he approached Zacchaeus. The Son of Man came to seek and to save, follow me here, that which was in the wrong place. The word lost there. The word lost in the Greek means to be in the wrong place. It's used a couple of other times by Jesus. It's used by Jesus when he talks about the lost sheep that the shepherd goes after. Wait, this sheep isn't with the other sheep. It's lost. It's in the wrong place. These sheep are in the right place. I need to go to that sheep, that one that's in the, in the wrong place, and I need to get them so that I can bring them into the fold. He uses it again when he talks about the lost coin. The woman who lost a coin and basically tore her whole house up looking for the coin. The coin was in the wrong place. And this woman, as a picture of Jesus, was doing everything that she could do to find the thing that was in the wrong place. It's Scott Rawlings. (laughs) Scott Rawlings lost his keys. And he's put them in the wrong place. And because he's put them in the wrong place, he doesn't know where they are. They're lost. They're in the wrong place. They're not doomed. They're not condemned. They're just in the wrong place. But when they get back into his hands, they're going to be in the right place. And then he can use them again. And I'm praying he finds them. I'm praying God will show them where they are because we're tired of hearing the story. Anyway, um, lost, lost means you put it in the wrong place. So when Jesus is looking at Zacchaeus, who everybody is saying, oh, he's the sinner, he's condemned, Jesus is looking at him going, wait, he's just in the wrong place. How can this person in the wrong place get to the right place? You know what? Someone's got to go to him. Someone's got to go to him. Someone's got to quit pointing their finger at them and go to them with the compassion and mercy that Jesus went to Zacchaeus with and tell them, look, You need to be in the right place. And I know where the right place is. It's with Jesus because he finds lost people. This guy was lost. And had he not come looking for me, I'd still be lost in the wrong place. You who are following Jesus, the only reason you're following Jesus is because he came looking for you. He found you. You were in the wrong place. And he found you. He may have used someone to be that spokesperson to draw you to him. But he found you. And now you're in the right place. And now your job is my job. Your job is to go to this community where we live. This is us. I don't, we don't have to, I don't have to worry about Virginia Beach anymore. It's here. This is where I live. I live in Wheelersburg. 
I, that's where my attention is, my immediate attention, because that's where I live. But Wheelersburg's in Scioto County, which means Scioto County is a part of my, of my vision and my picture. And Scioto County is just across the river from Greenup County, which means that Greenup County is a part of my area. This is where I am. This is where you are. And you are given the same mission that Jesus took on when he went after Zacchaeus and then when he went to the cross. And that is, if you know people who are lost, if you know people who are in the wrong place, go to them and tell them about Jesus. Because he's the one who can save. And with that, I want to pray with you. And after we pray, just say one other thing. Let's bow our heads. Father, I want to thank you so much that when you came, you came to seek and save the lost. Oh, you you had every reason to come and just wipe us all out. All of us broken. All of us in our sin. And yet in your mercy and grace, rather than, rather than coming and just bringing condemnation, you came and brought grace and mercy and peace where we can be at peace with you and peace with one another. Lord Jesus, I pray. I pray tonight that if anyone's in this room and their their life isn't right with you, they haven't repented of sin, they're trying to just be good enough, Father, I pray that tonight you would find them. That when they walk out of this building, they walk out no longer in the wrong place, but in the right place with you. And then, Father, as we walk out of this building together, I pray that you will open our eyes. Open our eyes so that we can see the hurt, the struggle, The pain of people who are living in the wrong place. People who are living separated from you. And Lord, use us to be your voice. Use us to be able to show actions of love. So that people will come to know you. And be found in you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you more than anything for finding me and for finding us. I give you praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Christ community, before you go this evening, I'm really serious about what what I'm saying concerning Our mission. The one thing we all have in common. Is what we've been called to do. As followers of Jesus. And that is to get outside of these walls. 
and tell people. Just get out of here and tell people. We live in a lost world that desperately needs Jesus. And so I want to invite you to join us as we pursue this community for Christ. At the same time, if you're here this evening and you want to know more about what it means to to be a follower of Christ, if you want to pray and spend some time just asking the Lord to forgive your sin, then tonight, just as I dismiss you, you can come up here. I'll be right here. I'd love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you. Ralph, I'll ask you to stick around too, if you will. And so Ralph will be here as well. And you can come and pray, and we'll, we'll do that. Um, don't leave here in the wrong place tonight. And then the last thing for you as you leave, if you're a guest with us this evening, I'm so glad you, you joined us this evening. As you go at the, at the end of the atrium, as you're walking out, we have a welcome table. We'd like for you to stop by if you would. Stop by, and we have a nice little gift for you, a nice dinner that, that we're going to buy for you and your family. And, and we'd love to have you stop by there so we could get to know you a little better, okay? God bless you guys. Have a great week, okay? We'll see you later.